Hi, this is Liz Williams, and welcome to Tip of the Tongue, the podcast about the intersection of food and museums. We're here today with Brent Rosen. Hello. He is the president and CEO of the uh, National Food and Beverage Foundation, which runs the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. Welcome. I'm excited to be here. So let's talk a little bit about food and museums. So I know that this is, um, you haven't even been here at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum for a year yet. It's been 10 months? No, not even. Not even 10 months, yeah. So tell me a little bit about um, sort of what it means to have uh, food in this museum in all the different ways. Well, since this is a food museum, it is food everywhere. There are food-related exhibits, whether those involve the different southern states in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, the Museum of the American Cocktail, and the... And drinks. And drinks. And then we have our kitchen in the museum where we do three classes a week and teach all kinds of people visiting New Orleans from New Orleans how to cook like a New Orleanian, how to cook Cajun, how to do Creole Italian, which is a ton of fun. And then within the museum, there's a restaurant space, and that space has its own kitchen and its own ability to be used for events, for different pop-ups and and other food-related stuff. So really, you can walk in and be hungry and curious and leave full and full of knowledge. And also, now there's an outdoor space where you can sometimes watch people smoke meat or boil crawfish crawfish, or whatever yeah pig you just never know and that's our the gumbo garden here at the museum which is another great asset and another spot that you know i regularly will walk back there and if there's a ripe tomato i might just pull it and and nibble on it because (laughs) you know they 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 don't last forever on the vine and uh, the gumbo garden is great because for our children's classes and that programming um, we're able to grow vegetables and then the kids when they come in can cook with stuff grown right here And I think that sort of shows a nice bit of just where food comes from because there's a lot of people that think it's the grocery store and don't realize that there's another step in that process in between when you get it at the store and and where it came from. So one of the questions that I get a lot, and since you are a food museum, you deal with it all the time, is how do you represent food in an exhibit and reference it um, in a way that is meaningful, but obviously isn't a plate of food. I would say that's almost two questions, because the one question is how do you represent the food or have food in the museum without it going bad, if it has to be there forever? And for some things, that's easy. A uh, can of beans, you can sit in an exhibit and not have to worry about it. Whereas our Vidalia onions, we had to use some sort of plastic balls that look a little bit like softballs and put a little coat of paint on them and and get them looking a little bit yellow and a little bit more like an onion. We have a ham exhibit and the hams are stuffed with stuffing so that in the bags of ham hanging look like there's something in them. So on the one hand there's that challenge which is how do you make a realistic looking representation of the food. But the other challenge that you mentioned is you know contextualizing food, making food accessible without it being on a plate, without being able to taste it and smell it and and interact with it in that way. And that's more of a challenge because you get beyond, I think, in some ways, the food itself and get more into where does it come from and who makes it and what are the processes behind it. 
so that it's, it's less about here is steak and more about steak is ranched in a certain way in certain places, but it's different in others and there's different characters involved in it. And so rather than focus necessarily on just the food, it's more of the whole story behind the food and the culture of the food and, and where food fits into history and, and how foodways in different parts of our, our food culture come directly from historical events, historical figures, things that you know about, you just didn't know those things had something to do with food themselves. I think it's interesting that you talk about steak because it is possible to get a plastic steak. And yet... You can even get those in some restaurants. That's true. <laughs> um, but the fact that you have this one idea of what a steak is that's represented by that plastic steak is really much more confining and limited than talking about where it comes from and who grows it and how you serve it, how you prepare it, how you do everything that has to do with it. And um, it is interesting that actually representing it in some kind of very literal way is a more limiting way to discuss it. I, th I think absolutely. And, and almost it's the, the most limiting way because that's telling, I think, rather than showing. You know, telling someone, here's what a steak is is not anywhere near, I think, as exciting as showing people not just what a steak is, but why, where does it come from and why? And what parts of the South, in this instance, because this is the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, have been influenced by cattle culture, ranching culture, and what does that mean in those states versus states that do not? And, you know, Texas is the first place you think of, but there's plenty of places in the South where cattle are raised and grown and, and turned into food. And, you know, to think of, you know, the ribeye on the plate that's made of plastic, you know, as opposed to this whole system that does bring steak to the table. I, I agree 100% that it's, it's sort of a failure of imagination to think that to talk about steak in a museum requires a, a plastic steak on a plate with some pretend parsley on top. Right. Mm. So it also makes me think about the practice that the museum has of allowing patrons and people who are coming to visit the museum to get a drink or to eat in the museum. Um, and I think that's really an extraordinary thing in most museums. I was about to say, you've talked to a lot of museum people. Is that unique? Are we, are we the only one where you can just sort of nibble around while you visit? I mean, there's, there are museums that will let you come in to a particular area of the museum, obviously the, the little cafe in the museum sure. or whatever and eat. But other than that, no, you're really, really limited. Well, the nice thing about a food museum, I think, is that the, in general, the artifacts and the memorabilia and the ephemera is not as tender, not quite as, as fragile as other people's things where, you know, a can of, of coffee from the 1800s or the early 1900s is nowhere near as fragile as a painting from the same period. Mm -hmm. And if, if someone wanted to come by and, and pick up that can, there's nothing that's going to damage it for posterity. Whereas sculptures, different things, if you were to put your, you know, oils on them or on manuscripts, you know, they'll quickly degrade. And so there's, on the one hand, we have some advantages over other museums, the other is it, it seems sort of crazy to have a food and beverage museum that you can't eat and drink in. 
because again, it's, it's providing that full experience where to be in our cocktail section and be having a cocktail would be better than being in our cocktail section without one. Because how better to experience what a Sazerac is like than having one from the bar and then learning that the Sazerac now uses Herb Saint instead of Absinthe because Absinthe was illegalized and a whole another industry was born. And from that industry came the Sazerac company and they're one of the larger distributors of all spirits in the country. But all of that goes back to the late 1800s in New Orleans in a very neat way that I can, again, I can tell you all about it, but to have a sip of a Sazerac goes a long way to telling you why that has been the, the drink of New Orleans for so long. Now, and I always say that picking up a cast iron pot that is full of something is a different experience than reading in someone's journal that it's heavy and I'm tired or whatever because I've been cooking all day. The experience of picking up that pot makes you realize why you get tired. The labor involved mm-hmm. in, in, you know, being in the history business allows us to look at appliances for more than just the conveniences. But the, the way that appliances freed people from some of the heavy labor that was done and made it easier to cook because pots and pans don't weigh 80, 90, 100 pounds and have to be you know, over an open fire in order to work. And then think about you have to tend a fire, but also cut the firewood and then shovel out the charcoals. And, and so it's not just cooking. The labor of cooking in the old days when you had to provide for your own fire and your own everything that you used to cook with is much different. And, and I think that when you look at journals and think of people cooking in the old days, you know, the idea that they're chopping onions and you know, throwing them in a pan and using a wooden spoon you know, that's a very sort of modern interpretation of the labor of old cooking, which just in, look, you said, looking at the materials themselves, you realize the labor was a lot more than just stirring and, and chopping and cutting. Yes, yes. And even, even going into a, a kind of pre-electric time, but one that's fairly modern, even things like, and with convenience foods like cans and things, just the act of using an old-fashioned can opener to open the can is, uh, is, takes more effort than pressing the button on the electric can opener. Um, I mean, we've really... Uh, it's all a little bit on demand at yes, this point. Yes. And work, I've worked with some different chefs, and the strongest people in the kitchen are on the pastry team because they are constantly working dough and doing things the old-fashioned way because there's just not appliances that can recreate a lot of, you know, the beating and the rolling and the pushing, where on the savory side, a lot of that work can be saved or is easier with, like our modern deep fryers. Mm -hmm. Deep fat frying things without a deep fryer is a royal pain in Mm -hmm. tons of ways. But it's pretty simple when it's just a basket and you drop it in. On the baking side, you, you will see, look at your, next time you're in a restaurant, look at the forearms on the bakers, and, and you will see who the, the real laborers are in, in the modern kitchen. Yes, yes. It's, uh, it's an interesting, it's really an interesting, I feel like if you come to a place like this, and then you go to a real kitchen or a restaurant, you can carry with you so much of what you've seen or learned, and... Um, it changes your appreciation of it. Well, I, I'm going to sound, 
I don't know what this is, but maybe not well informed or maybe never thought about it. But I, I watched a documentary where someone cooked, cooked, put on a pot of coffee using a wood burning stove. And it never occurred to me that the little eyes on your range at one time had fire under them and were not just the electrical ring or the gas ring. And so to see somebody make a fire, then pull the little cover off so direct fire is underneath and then place a coffee pot on top. And, and it was revelatory because to me, coffee comes out of a little machine. The idea that there was once a time when you built a fire and used heavy duty metal and, and it was a whole process is so foreign to, I think, anybody who was not raised in the era before modern appliances that you just don't even think that that was a thing. And you probably didn't watch them um, actually roast the beans first and then grind them with the hand grinder before um, exactly. they made Exactly. I didn't see any of that either. And, and now you're talking about, I mean, how long did it take to make a cup of coffee in the 1800s? I mean, my goodness, no wonder there were coffee shops. Well, and not only that, that's why you had one cup of coffee. You didn't sit there and have coffee all day the way we might. Because to make a cup of coffee was a big pain. Yes, that was real work. <laughs> yeah. So tell me um, a little bit about what your expectation was when you came to work here and what you found when you began to work here. I think I expected the people who came to visit to be informed, I guess, about food. Because like any in-person experience now, it takes a lot to get people to put on clothes and come to see you. There's a lot you can do in your home, there's a lot you can do on the internet. So to be able to get someone here, you know, you would think they would be knowledgeable. I've been kind of blown away by some of the specific knowledge that I've picked up just from museum visitors and their level of sort of interest and enthusiasm for the collections that we have and the things that they know about where they'll come in and they'll ask, you know, I see you have a coffee section. Do you have a, an X or a Y? And, and suddenly we're digging around looking for these things because people are just curious and want to see them. And so, you know, I knew, our, I knew the staff at the museum would be educated in food. I knew that the guests would be at least curious. But it's been amazing how much I've learned from the people who have come here. And, and you sort of think of yourself as the teacher at a museum. And it's, it's neat that our interactions with our guests become sort of learning moments too. And I can imagine since this museum is based so much and organized so much by state, that people from different states who come and visit can find um, things that need to be included in their state's exhibit that might not be. Oh, I think that it's probably every museum person, you know, it's suggestions from the crowd are probably something that, <laughs> that everybody has, you know, as part of their job. But I think in particular, we get more of that than probably other places where even in New Orleans, you know, somebody can go to an art museum or the World War II Museum and, and not really feel like they need to pipe up and say, you know, what about this or what about that? Whereas in a food museum, you know, pretty much everybody's an expert in, in the sense that we all eat three times a day and, and food is an important part of most people's lives, and at least the interesting people. And uh, then you have guests who come and they're from Texas and they want to know, you know, where's the stuff from Whataburger? Or where is the stuff from Scheinerbach? Or, or where are the barbecue, where's the barbecue section in Texas? And what I try to tell everybody is um, 
we, we are, we take what's given and what is donated and then we go out and try to find specific things. And so as we get suggestions, we, we note them, we list them, and, and a lot of times it's nice to have holes pointed out because I am not an expert on the cuisine of Texas or the cuisine of North Carolina. But our visitors are, <laughs> and, and we have a lot of experts in our, our orbit who can tell us you know, what we don't have. And I think that that's nice because you know, there's, there's no pretension about it. I think for someone to walk into an art museum and ask, you know, why doesn't the collection include this painter or this sculptor? You know, that's a much different conversation than, did you get a couple of, of bottles of Tito's to show Texas has vodka too? Mm-hmm. And, and it's a much, again, it's a much easier thing for us to take those suggestions because a lot of the products that we need aren't priceless artifacts that must be kept under glass and have to be guarded at all times. For us, a lot of what we have here are bottles of alcohol cans of beer, cans of corn, different things that you know, are very familiar, but they have historical value and in historical context tell a real story, you know, more than just this is a can of beans. So um, tell me a little bit about some of the programming that you have planned and how you're bringing the museum into the community. I think uh, like we mentioned earlier, the, the idea that you have to come here and, and be present with us makes what we do, it makes it very important that what we do reaches the community and, and people want to be here because there's lots of options for food content. You can watch David Chang's things on Netflix, YouTube has all kinds of stuff. Food there's Network. Food Network, you know, even not just the, the you know, broadcast TV, but everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so... Probably on YouTube, there's more uh, demonstration of various kinds of foods than almost... Than almost anywhere. Any, yeah. I mean, it's the second largest search engine after Google itself. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot there. Mm-hmm. And so our programs are the thing that really is your first sort of entry to us. And so within the museum, there are three days a week cooking classes, and they cover New Orleans cuisine, Cajun cuisine, and Creole Italian cuisine, which I think I mentioned earlier. Then there's a meat science department where we have a a really fun gentleman named Dan Robert who curates our meat department. And he teaches sausage making, boudin, head cheese, all of the fun Cajun meats that, you know, we're famous for down in Louisiana. But then also barbecue. Uh, his team that he's on won Hogs for the Cause, which is New Orleans' big barbecue tournament. So some days it's learning how to make a brisket or a pork butt or, or those things perfectly. Um, we have great kids programs, and, and it's one of the areas that I am most proud of because the passion that kids who are into food show is just unbelievable and contagious, but then they're also the future and the people that are going to carry on the sort of knowledge that we're sharing here and the techniques and the traditions. Because if you're the kind of seven or eight year old that wants to come you know, cook at a food museum, you're, you're probably gonna be somebody interested in what we do for a long time. And that's very exciting. And then beyond the sort of hands-on you know, cooking things, we're trying to do more exhibits that reflect the people in the South back to themselves. And so that doesn't necessarily mean you know, that everything is, is about barbecue or fried chicken. It's, it's not that Southerner. But the idea that you know, the Vietnamese influence on Southern food is, is incredible, but the Vietnamese are just the most recent in what is a very long line of international communities coming to the South and impacting it. 
And, and you can talk about the German influence on Southern cuisine with our hams and our sausages. You can talk about the Italian influence on Southern cuisine, which is incredible, especially in, in Louisiana and in New Orleans, where at one time there were almost as many Sicilians in New Orleans as there were Palermo. And our traditions of snowballs and Creole Italian food and all of that come directly from it. And so there's, it's those programs where, you know, looking at the Vietnamese in the South, but remembering that back in time, there were other people that did the same thing. And, and now that the, you know, Vietnamese Creole has become such an important part of New Orleans cuisine that people come to visit just to try the fuzz and the shrimp dishes and, and the things that are, they're New Orleans-y, but they're also something else and something different. And so as our programming grows on the museum side, it will be these exhibits that sort of tell long stories, but about specific things. And it's going to be very fun to add that level of community involvement too, where on a Friday night we may have a little pop-up restaurant in our new space that features a Vietnamese chef from Houston or from Northern Virginia. And, and we can learn as New Orleanians, there are other Vietnamese communities influencing other types of Southern food. And while we've grown accustomed to banh mi that are kind of like po'boys and crawfish that are super spicy, those same influences are working in Texas and in Virginia and in the Carolinas, but in different ways. And so our programs, I think, they go from being something that you can sort of appreciate on the wall to something that is very alive and that you can recognize as part of the longer story of the South, but, but also current and interesting and something that you, know, you can leave saying, I know more about food and now I want to go eat these things because I understand better where the ingredients come from and the cultural influences behind it. So one of the things that um, I've had people in museums tell me is that because we are in New Orleans, also Louisiana, but in New Orleans in particular, um, we are very fortunate that you're allowed to have a glass of some kind of alcoholic beverage that you can walk around the museum drinking and that um, it's not only the fact that it's not a governmental museum that is the limitation, but that it's just because we have laws that allow this to happen. What, what do you think about that? And do you think that we're just fortunate and lucky enough to take advantage of it here? Or uh, is it uh, one of those things where you think in order to have a spirits museum of some sort almost anywhere, or one that deals with alcoholic beverages, that like a, a brewing museum or something, that it really does not give you a complete experience without being able to drink the brew? Well, I, I, that's, an, that's an interesting question when applied maybe in, in, I think the answer to the question, can you appreciate a museum about beer without drinking beer? The answer would have to be yes just from the same sense that I've been to like a, the, a jazz museum where you don't necessarily have to hear the music to enjoy looking at the trumpet that Louis Armstrong once used. But I think you're getting part of the experience and not a whole one. And we're very fortunate in Louisiana, New Orleans, that we don't have the open container rules that everyone else does. And I mean, those signs that say, you know, no alcoholic beverages beyond this point, 
I, I just ignore them when I'm in other places. And then when someone says, what are you doing? I go, oh, I'm from New Orleans. And, and, and then behave. But I at least get one pass. But, you know, the, I think there's a lot of museums that are too fussy to let people eat and drink in them anyway. And while we may be, the laws may allow us to do it, I think there's a little bit of a mindset, too, that, that when you're operating, we operate a community center for people interested in food. We have a museum, but we also have other things. And I'd like to think about us in that way, that we want people to be in here and provide hospitality and comfort and, and the things that a good restaurant can provide. And so, you know, I think other museums where if they think of themselves more as the, the sort of set in, and more fixed, and, and we do the, we're a museum that does X, and, and we're here to show you that. That, that's not necessarily putting yourself in a place of great hospitality. I think you can run a wonderful museum and not even think about hospitality if you want, but it's better if you can, and, and people will enjoy it more if they're able to feel at home. And so, sure, there's limitations on that. I mean, I wouldn't run a textile museum and have people drinking red wine in it. I just think that would be reckless. But I think there's, I think it all But comes, it's not only red wine. It might be cranberry anything, juice or, or pomegranate yes. juice or whatever. Or, or really yeah. anything. I mean, mm -hmm. and to be honest, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to throw stones when you have a food museum. And it, <laughs> but um, I think that, I think there's a mentality of, you know, even if the rules tell you no, there's always things that can be done. I mean, I, I'm sure that most museums, you know, that don't generally allow food and drink have some kind of events where there is food and drink or they have a gala where there's food and drink. And, you know, is it, is it a risk thing? I don't know. Is it a law thing? Who knows? But I think the more museums can think of themselves as if they are in the hospitality business more than they're in the museum business, the better for all museums. Yes, and I also think that it really helps to turn the visit into an experience as opposed to a kind of passive looking at things. And then I think the passive looking at things idea is one that is on its way out. And, and if you are the kind of museum that thinks that's what museums are for, then unless you are one of the you know, Grand Dame art museums that's just not going anywhere, I, I would predict struggling a little because this goes back to that whole idea of the whole world of art is available to me on the internet. The whole world of music is available to me on the internet. The whole world of food is really available to me on the internet. So if I'm going to come and have an in-person experience, it has to be better than watching it on Netflix, better than playing on YouTube. And, and how do you do that if your attitude is, we're this sort of aloof place that you can come and look at things, but don't touch and don't have too much fun and don't be too loud and God forbid, don't have a glass of wine. You know, that, that sort of almost feels like you're, you know, your older relative's house with plastic on the furniture and all you want to do is get out of there as fast as possible. And, you know, that shouldn't be how museums see themselves. We, sh we shouldn't be an older, you know, an old home covered in plastic but something that, hey, you know, I'll take the risk of someone having an amazing, of lots of people having an amazing time. For if something goes wrong, something goes wrong. But I think if you spend all of your time thinking about what can go wrong, the amount that you're limited by is definitely worse than whatever you're avoiding. And, and so, you know, if there's a 10% chance something terrible might happen and a 90% chance people will have a wonderful time, then balance that. And, and see, can you find a way to, to make it enjoyable for people 
and not you know jeopardize whatever it is you're trying to do. And that that same attitude brings me to thinking about the way that people seem to visit and then interact. And um, I've watched people ask at the front desk, can you explain this to me? Can you come talk to me about this? I mean, there seems to be um, a, a real engagement which people desire more than I've ever seen anybody in an art museum go to the front and say, can you explain this Picasso to me or whatever? You know, I, I think that's a great point in, in what this museum does well. I, and, I, and it comes down to, I think, the accessibility of the people who work here in, in a way. Because I'm a regular, I, I'm, I love going to art museums and I love art and, and I find them very engaging. But the only person you see in an art museum is a guard. You don't ever see the people who work there because they're they're cloistered off in their offices and and they're away from what's actually happening, and they don't make their curatorial people available to Joe Schmo who happens to walk in from wherever because they have other more important things to do. And and in that mentality of being a community center here, our staff is very available, and a lot of them are doing a cooking demonstration. So when you walk in and you have questions. Well, by God, they're cooking, so ask. There's nothing to, you're not interrupting any important work because our important work is in having people experience and enjoy the food of the South. And so I, I think it, again, goes back to that overall mentality of sort of, you're here to serve the public, maybe not first in all of these places, but it's definitely in the top three. And you know maybe your number one job is preserving a certain type of art or a certain type of culture, and then your second job is displaying it. But your third is definitely the people part. And I think a lot of museums forget about that, that it's your guest that is why you're open. <laughs> it's, it's not to display art. It is to In have guests yes. look at it. Yes. And, and so when, when museums forget that it's the people who come there that are the product, not the things on the wall, then you get into difficulty. And so... I, I like how available our team is and how our front desk people can interact. And, and maybe come back a little bit too to that the level of expertise needed in a food museum is low. The level of expertise needed to go to a you know, contemporary art gallery and look at you know, just a painting that's just a green canvas. And you know, that requires some knowledge of art theory and, and academic practice within that. Whereas we don't do that. <laughs> we, we are very much at the level of, of anyone because food is, and even the most complicated food is still food. Mm -hmm. and, and even if it's silly and conceptual and, and sort of ridiculous, like a lot of the foam was in, in all of those sort of molecular, molecular gastronomy things that were yeah. so popular 10, 15 years ago, at the end of the day, they were still food. And whereas there's some, some real obscure and academic things in the art world and in the science world and even in the business world, that don't translate quite as well to accessible museum display. But it, it, I think really it's, it's, it's the mentality of our guests who are allowed to treat this place like it's their home and to wander through, pick things up, touch them, have a glass of wine, ask a question. There's just, there's no pretense here at all. And that's, you know, and that's not to say that, you know, all art museums are pretentious or all, but it's, it's just harder to be pretentious when what you have is, is food and it's available to everybody and it's not, you know, a painting that's worth $70 million because it's the only one left. 
and if it's not protected, it could be gone. We just, food doesn't do that. It's, it's cultural and nostalgic and something that can be alive even if you don't have the example of it because like, I don't have red beans and rice to be eaten here in the museum. But if you want red beans and rice, you can get them in 10 places within a few blocks of here. Mm -hmm. So to learn about you know, Warren LaRouf, who was a, a red beans and rice sort of pioneer and that his recipe is Popeye's recipe. If that was in the same context an art thing, you know, that might be the, the last remaining Picasso done in this style in this place. Mm -hmm. And so how could you, how do you share that in a way that it's awfully easy to share red beans? And, and I think that's, again, it's, it's an advantage that we have over traditional museums is, is you can come here and it doesn't matter what your level is of, of knowledge, you can leave with a lot more appreciation for food and its traditions and the culture that comes from it. Thanks so much for talking to us here on Tip of the Tongue. Thanks so much for talking to us on Tip of the Tongue. Tip of the Tongue is part of the Nitty Grits Network of the National Food and Beverage Foundation. You can listen to us on our website, natfab.org, or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts.